one of the difficult things about being a Bible student is trying to understand the timeline. It gets very confusing uh, trying to sort out what events happened in what order and why these players are important and how they interact with each other. Uh, in the next few weeks, as we're online together, thank you, Chris, uh, uh, Jeremy and I will be talking to you about just how to understand your Bible better. We're going to talk a lot about this in the coming year. We're going to do some wonderful character studies from the Old Testament in the coming year. If you don't know who Jephthah is, and you don't know who uh, Abraham is, uh, what their point is of him in the story, we're going to talk about all of that in the coming year and help you make better sense and, and a better understanding of what you're reading. Uh, I'm going to attempt to do that this morning, and I know there's a lot of college students in the room and high school students in the room, and uh, as you're sitting through history classes, hopefully you're not being bored because history is the most fascinating subject there is to me. And uh, if you have a really good history teacher in, in junior high and in, in high school and in the college even, it'll really open your mind to understanding why the world is the way it is and how all the players interact with each other. I'm going to, I don't have time to give as good a lesson, as thorough a lesson as I'd like to give, but I'm going to take a stab at it, okay? So we've been talking about the Christmas story from the different Gospels this morning, Matthew. Matthew comes at it. Matthew's already read Mark's Gospel. Mark got his out first. Matthew's read it. Matthew realizes Mark didn't tell the Christmas story. Mark jumped right into, here's Jesus being baptized, let's go, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then. Mark's moves just like that. At a high, rapid pace, just like this. If you have ADHD or something, read Mark. It moves at your pace, okay? You won't get bored. And he uses words, and then immediately, and then straightway, and then he did this, and immediately did this. I love it, because it just fits right into my genre of thinking, okay? Matthew takes a different track. He's read Mark's gospel. He said, you move too fast. Matthew's saying, you didn't tell the Christmas story. You didn't tell him why this and why that. And so Matthew's going to fill in the blanks. Nothing in the Bible is superfluous. If you're reading something and you don't know why it's there, you need to stop for a second and ask yourself, why is this in the Bible? I mean, why is it in the Bible that Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law who's pretending to be a prostitute and conceives a child? Now that's something that seems like should not be in a Bible. Can we all agree on that? Okay, well then there's a point to it. It has something to do with the story that they're telling, and it's going to be clear later why it's in the story. Matthew's the only gospel that talks about wise men. Why in the world would wise men be in the story of Jesus? Well, they're so, gosh, I don't even know what the word is now, nostalgic to us at Christmas, we know they belong in the Christmas story. My question to you is, why do they belong in the Christmas story? What in the world do wise men have to do anything with the story of Jesus? They come into the stage out of nowhere, they make an appearance, right back off the stage on their camels and they're gone, right? I mean, and you're just like, okay, what was the point of that? Why are there wise men? And most people think the wise men were written into the story so we could give Christmas gifts to each other, right? You see, they gave gifts. Golden, frankincense, and myrrh, we need to give gifts at the birth of Christ. Well, they don't show up till two years later, and that's not the reason they show up, by the way. So let me go to Matthew very quickly, and let me see if I can lay out a little, little bit of history for you. One day, Jesus, as a grown man, walking down the, the, the streets of, of Galilee, 
walks by the tax collector's office and pauses. He turns and says, I guess today's the day I encounter this guy, and he goes over and strikes up a conversation with a man named Levi. We know him as Matthew. And I think The Chosen did a wonderful job portraying Matthew as high-functioning autistic. See the series and you'll understand what I'm talking about. And uh, Jesus turns to Levi at the tax collector's office. He's sitting in there collecting to actively engaged in his job. Jesus says, can I have uh, your attention for a moment, Levi? Stop what you're doing and follow me. Now, if Jesus showed up at your work and told you to stop what you're doing and follow, you'd have some decisions to make. Now, what the Bible tells us is that Levi stopped what he was doing and immediately went and followed, without hesitation, Jesus Christ and became one of his disciples. Uh, I think the Chosen series does a great job of showing you the friction between Matthew and the other disciples. Has anybody seen what I'm talking about? That tension that exists between them. He's a tax collector, a puppet of Rome. They are Jews fighting for the purity and, uh, of Israel and the incoming of the Messiah. He's a Roman puppet employee, and there's this incredible tension between them. But when Matthew, Levi, gets saved and he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, the first thing he does is throw a party in his house. Well, he's not a proper Christian, if you would. Maybe to your thinking, he doesn't know any better than to throw a, a big party. Or maybe our thinking is all wrong and we should be throwing more parties where we can introduce people to Jesus. We've got some questions to ask ourselves. Nonetheless, Jesus never criticizes him. And the first thing Matthew does after getting saved is he wants to introduce everybody to his new Messiah, his new leader, his new Lord. And so Matthew throws a big old party and uh, 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 he invites all of his tax collector buddies to come to the party that he's thrown because Matthew wants to introduce everybody in his old world to the man who's changed his life, Jesus Christ, and has given him a new reality of living. And so he invites Jesus, he invites all of his tax collector friends, and here's what's fascinating in the Scripture. Jesus is absolutely comfortable at the party. Absolutely in his element. And you may say, well, I don't know how Jesus would deal with alcohol in the room. Yes, you do. It's in the Scripture. You say, well, I just don't know how Jesus would do being in the company of people who were, you know, embezzlers and cheats and, and prostitutes and, and people of questionable character and politicians and, and religious leaders who are not yet saved. And I don't know how Jesus would be with you. You absolutely know how he would be because the New Testament records all the scenes for you. Jesus is absolutely comfortable in all of those environments. And uh, he immediately drew criticism because he is at such a party. And the scribes and Pharisees are very quick now to accost Jesus. Uh, they're incredibly offended that someone who portrays themselves as a prophet or a man of God would be keeping the company of these tax collectors. I'm reading now from Matthew 9, verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and with sinners? The question was addressed at the disciples, and Jesus steps in and answers it. He said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. If you want insight into the mind of Jesus about uh, you interacting with a, a world that's around you that doesn't know Christ, there is the definitive statement on it. We need to teach our children and our college students and we need to teach ourselves, adults, that we are here to interact with a lost world. 
We must interact with the lost world. It is our job to let our light shine in, in the midst of darkness. We are the salt of the earth. We have lights to shine. And this is our mission. Jesus said, I didn't come to, to, to rub shoulders with the healthy. He said, the sick need a physician. And so I'm keeping company with the people that need me. Now, Matthew includes uh, an incident, as I said, that no other gospel writer mentions. And you need to be asking yourself right now, why did Matthew include the story of the wise men visiting Bethlehem? Why is that in my Bible? And there are probably two good possible answers. One great answer and another great answer. And you can put those together and come up with two fantastic answers. Giving gifts at Christmas has nothing to do with it. Uh, the, the wise men do not come to the manger. They come two years later to the child Jesus, not the infant Jesus in the manger. The Christmas cards are wrong. If you sent me that Christmas card, I'm not judging. You know, it's, it's all good. Uh, I like those, those images and I understand it all comes together into one event for us. But you need to be asking yourself, why is this in the Bible? Now, Matthew's gospel makes the point that Jesus is king. This is the point Matthew is going to make with the whole story. He's read what Mark said. Mark said he's the son of God who came to be a servant and he'll do anything for you. It focuses on the actions and miracles of Jesus. Matthew's read that and he says, now I need to make a bigger point based on Mark's gospel. Let me elaborate a little more. I want to show you that he's not only, you know, this miracle working son of God, but that he's the rightful king to the throne of planet earth. And especially Israel. And that's the point Matthew is going to make. So there must be something about the wise men that connects to that theme that Matthew's trying to drive. Now, here's the history lesson. It is the book of Daniel in the Old Testament that actually connects all of the dots for us. And many times in modern Christianity, we're so focused on the New Testament, we forget that the New Testament is just bringing the story up to date in the first century the story that the Old Testament has been telling, the New Testament is like, yes, we're in a new covenant, but it's an updating of the same story that's being told in the Old Testament. So we have to know the story that's being told in the Old Testament. And so the book of Daniel is the key to understanding how God worked through four great Gentile empires, four great kingdoms of world history. The prophet Daniel is going to write about world history that has not yet happened. In other words, he's a prophet. He's going to say, here's what's going to happen. This kingdom will come, and this kingdom will come, and this kingdom will come. Nobody has any idea what he's talking about because it hadn't happened yet. But he nailed it. <laughs> if you go and read the book of Daniel, he absolutely nailed world history. And what Daniel is saying, the opening chapters, let's say 1 to 7, are about the life of Daniel. We'll study a little bit of that in the coming new year as we talk about the character Daniel and, and his friends. The, from about chapter 7, 8 on, the book of Daniel is about prophecy. It's about things that are, that are yet to happen in world history. And in those chapters, Daniel prophesies about how God's going to use great world empires to advance the story of the New Testament that God will ultimately put His King on the throne and fix the mess that the world is in. God will send His fixer, but God's going to use four big massive empires to get the world ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. So the king, way back there in the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He can't interpret the dream. The dream's got him all beside himself. He calls in his wise men, his magi, his advisors, 
Daniel now is part of that group. He says, I want you to tell me my dream and tell me the interpretation of the dream. They're powerless to do so. Daniel gets on his knees. He gets the answer from God. He goes in and tells the king the answer to the dream. In the dream, king, you saw this big image of a man. Head, neck, shoulders, arms, torso, abs, thighs, legs, feet, toes. You saw this giant image, and it's made of four different metals. And I want to tell you the meaning of the image And the first meaning of the image is the Babylonian Empire. It's about the four great kingdoms that are coming. And so, so as Daniel lays this out, I'm reading Daniel 2.37. Your Majesty, Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, one of the great rulers of the ancient world. Your Majesty, you are the king of kings. He doesn't mean he's Jesus. He means you're, you're the biggest king of kings. Remember, suzerain king. Vassal king, you're the suzerain. There's a lot of little kings on this earth, but you're the biggest king we've got going. The God of heaven has given you dominion and might and glory. And in your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the fields and birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you the ruler over them all. You are the head of gold on the image. The head of gold represents the Babylonian Empire. So you can go home today and you can get any credible world history textbook and you'll find the historic facts that after a reign of 67 years, Babylonian Empire, after a reign of 67 years, from 605 to 538 B.C., the Babylonians ruled the world. But then, in 538 B.C., the Babylonians were overthrown by the Medo-Persian, the Medes and the Persians. This would be like modern-day Iran. They were overthrown by the Medes and Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was born. The Persian Empire, arms, chest, torso of this image. The Medo-Persian Empire lasted for 208 years, a little bit longer, from 538 B.C. to 330 B.C. I'm reading from Daniel 2, verse 39. Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Your gold, it's silver. Now the prophet Daniel actually lived through this transition from head, from gold to silver, from head to shoulders, from Babylon to Medo-Persia. Daniel's like the president of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar, prime minister if you would, and he lives through all of these kingdoms serving multiple different kings, Xerxes, Darius, Nebuchadnezzar, and so forth. The Persian Empire is represented by the arms of chest and silver. Uh, The Persian Empire was not as rich as the Babylonian Empire, but it gets, as the metals depreciate in value, gold, silver, bronze, iron, they get stronger. Most of you know you can bend your wedding band if you try. It's probably 14 karat gold. It's very soft. 18 carats even softer. 24 carats even softer, pure gold. You have to alloy metal with it to make it hard enough. If you've got 12 carat gold ring, maybe your class ring might be 12 carat because they want it to be harder so you don't ding it all the time. It's still precious, but it's alloyed with a harder metal. That's what's happening in the statue. As the value goes down the strength increases. Iron is much stronger than gold and silver, and that's what he's working for. The kingdom was more powerful, but not as rich. Now we're ready for the third Gentile kingdom. That was Medo-Persia. Rule lasted for 200 years. Then comes in the Greek Empire, Daniel 2, 39 again. Next, the third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. 
And if you go to your history book again, Daniel nailed it. History will confirm that in 331 B.C., the Greeks, uh, the Greek armies overthrew, destroyed the, the, the Medo-Persian armies in the final battle of Arbella. The Greeks attained a victory by a powerful young king that we came to know as Alexander the Great of Greece. And the Greek Empire covered far more territories than the Babylonian or the Medo-Persian Empire. It was more vast. It was stronger. The metal is stronger. Not quite as rich as the old ancient kingdoms. So Alexander, you know, conquered the world by the age of 33. And then at the age of 33, there was no world to conquer. And he mourned and he, he got syphilis and he lost his mind, whatever. And he died in Babylon. He's there at the ancient capital having conquered the whole world. But Alexander dies at age 33. The Greek Empire dies with him, if you would. That's the third great empire. And when Alexander dies, they, they, they had a meeting there in Babylon. His four generals met. And they just said, what are we going to do now? And they were jockeying for who's going to be the next emperor. And instead, they decided they would split. The kingdom was so big. The Greek Empire was so big. That they decided they would just split it into four pieces. East, west, north, and south. So four generals of Alexander split the kingdom of Alexander into four pieces. And uh, I'll, I'll give you the names. Macedon, and then uh, Pergama, and Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And I know you don't care, but here's why you care. Because the two that really made news was the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemy kingdom in the south. So they split Alexander's kingdom into five, four. And uh, here's what happened. This northern and southern were really going to fight each other out in the coming years. The reason you care about the south, Ptolemy, because Ptolemy is Cleopatra's people. That's her daddy, the Ptolemaic kingdom. The way you get a Greek-influenced queen on the throne of Egypt who falls in love with Mark Antony and Caesar, she's not Egyptian in that way. She's Ptolemy. She's a descendant of Alexander's general uh, the Alexander the Great Kingdom split in four pieces. And the Ptolemy who ends up ruling Egypt after killing her brother and etc. is Cleopatra. The famous uh, stories are all about her and obviously Mark Antony and ultimately uh, Caesar uh, falls in love and they, they conceive a child together. Now, the northern kingdom that fought with the Ptolemy kingdom is the one that really we're interested in. The, the, the Seleucid Empire of the north. What happened is the Seleucid decided they would go fight with the Ptolemies and they would take their kingdom. And when the Seleucids marched south, well, they were led by a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was one of these really in the line of Seleucids and he was just a terrorist. He was a really bad guy. And uh, he, he marched south to fight against Egypt, against the Ptolemy kingdom. And when he did, the armies of Rome, this, this uh, western world, stopped him, blocked him. He was so furious at being blocked by one of the other generals, that he turned back north. And when he turned north, he's like a child having a tinter tantrum because he was strategically blocked. He's just itching to fight somebody. So what he decided to do is turn his army on Jerusalem. This is why the Bible cares. He decided to turn his army on Jerusalem after being blocked uh, against Ptolemy by Rome, essentially. That he marched on Jerusalem, and when he hit Jerusalem, he sacked the city. He, he, he completely ransacked the temple and stole some of the stuff out of the temple. He flipped the temple from being a house of God, Jehovah God worship, to a house of idol worship. He, he, he took a sow 
And he offered it on the altar in the temple of Jerusalem and took the blood and poured it all over all the candlestick, the altar of incense, the curtain. He poured the blood every, a pig in the capital of the Jews. You understand what's happening? And he dedicated the temple to Jupiter and he forced the Jews to worship Jupiter. He brought prostitutes into the temple to celebrate in orgiastic fashion the, the holy days of Jupiter in Jerusalem, just as they do in Rome and in Athens and in the other pagan lands of the world. Can you imagine the Jews were losing their minds over this? He killed 80,000 Jews in the process. He captured 40,000 Jews in the process and sold them worldwide into slavery. Now, this is a bad guy, right? <laughs> it's a really bad guy. So he's, he's trying to wipe out the worship of Jehovah God, of Yahweh God of the Old Testament. He's trying to wipe it out. He forbade them to read the Scriptures. <clears throat> he said, if we find any of these religious books... Now, in those days, religious sacred writings would have been some of those copies of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. You see, it's the Old Testament. He said, if you have any of those religious I'm going to burn them. I forbid the worship of your God. We're going, to, we're going to worship idols and prostitutes and all of this kind of stuff. And so he sent his emissaries out of Jerusalem to all the little villages to enforce Jupiter worship in the villages. Now imagine you're a worshiper of God and suddenly the soldiers show up <coughs> in your village. An emissary from the Antiochus Epiphanes king shows up in your village and says, You will worship Jupiter. We're going to set the idol up right here and you're all going to bow down and worship it. And they've got soldiers with sword. It's kind of like that moment we talked about in the Roman Empire when people renounce their faith in order to save their lives. Remember that? You have to ask yourself, what would I do if such a thing ever happened right here in my own country? I don't think it will ever happen, but God forbid we ever have to make that choice. I'll tell you what happened in this context. <clears throat> the emissary went to a village, Modin. There's an old, old man, an ancient priest. His name is Mathathias. I'll tell you why you care. We'll talk about it maybe in the upcoming online services as well. There's an old man named Mathathias. Gruff old guy. has got five sons. And when they come to his village and force him to worship Jupiter, one man bows down to worship Jupiter. And the emissary from the Antiochus Epiphanes is there enforcing the worship. Mathathias gets so overwhelmed in righteous indignation that the old man draws his sword and kills the idol worshiper and kills the emissary from Antiochus Epiphanes and immediately what was born in history is something called the Revolt of the Maccabees. Now, if you've ever heard the name Maccabees, this is the history between your Old and New Testament now. There are books that are not in your Bible <clears throat> called the Apocryphal books, 1st, 2nd Maccabees, or some of those uh, real history books, 1st, 2nd Maccabees, that are in the Apocryphal collection of books. Until 1885, all of the Apocryphal books were actually in the King James Bible. Maybe we'll tell you that story later this week, why they got taken out of the King James Bible. They're not sacred writings, they're historic writings. <clears throat> they're writings that Jesus and the apostles quoted from, so they're definitely valuable to them. But the Maccabean revolt was born when Mathathias killed them and said, we defy you, Antiochus Epiphanes, you will have to kill every one of us. We are not going to worship Jupiter. We worship the only one and true living God. 
Well, ultimately, he got old and died, and all five of his sons, one after another, took up the torch of freedom, and all of them began to be killed in the battles against Antiochus Epiphanes, until finally the last son, Judas, Judas Maccabeus, he's called Judas the Hammer. Isn't that a guy you'd like to sit down with and maybe, you know, have a conversation with? Judas the Hammer. That sounds like a man's man to me. Well, eventually, Judas the hammer. Thor. Thor of Israel, you know. That's what I imagine. Uh, Some Viking-looking dude who's Jewish. Thor of Israel. Judas the hammer took uh, up the torch of freedom and eventually defeated the tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes. And he said, Israel is free from the four generals. We are an independent nation. We We have won our freedom For the first time in a very long time of Gentile domination, three kingdoms have tried to rule us now, and now we are a free nation again, and they won their freedom. They went up to the temple to rededicate the temple, to scrub it, to hose it out, to clean it, to reconsecrate it. Now, you can't just burn any incense or any oil in the candlestick. It has to be consecrated. It has to be made after a a secret formula that only the the priests know and all this kind of stuff. And it has to be blessed properly and all of this. Consecrated oil. So when they got to the temple. Mom, have you talked about this on Wednesday night? Maybe the Maccabees. When they got into the temple, they found just somebody had hidden a little vial of oil. And they know how much oil those candlesticks burn. And so they took the oil and they said... The history records record this. This looks like about a day's worth of oil. And so the priest poured the oil into the candlestick and relit the light in the house of God. Isn't that beautiful? And they scrubbed it and said, it's now the house of God again. And it always was. And we relight the eternal light that burns in here that stands for God. And they said the oil, they recorded this in history. The oil didn't go out in 24 hours. The oil actually burned. Does anybody know how long? Eight days. And so they called this now a miracle. And they said because the oil lasted eight days, we're going to make this a perpetual national holiday. And they called it the Feast of Dedication. It's recorded in your Bible in John chapter 10 verse 22 where Jesus is observing the Feast of Dedication. Now many of you have friends who are Jewish, I hope. I hope you do. It's wonderful to have Jewish friends. Your Jewish friends for some time now have been observing a different holiday. What do you call it? Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the Feast of Dedication. So they renamed it later in history. So when your Jewish friends have a menorah in their home, it'll have nine candles. One is just a helper candle. There's really eight. And you know why there's eight now? Because the oil lasted for eight days. And they have a ninth little candle that they use to light the other candles, a little helper candle. But it's really celebration of eight, the eight dedication. And Jesus was still observing this in your, in your New Testament, Feast of Hanukkah. Now Daniel says that's three kingdoms, Israel's independent. Then what happened in history? Here's what happened, Daniel 2.40. Finally there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron for iron breaks and smashes everything. There's going to be a kingdom that's going to break and smash everything. And as iron breaks things into pieces, it will crush and break all the others. So here's what happened next in history. In 168 B.C., the Roman Empire was born. And the Roman Empire marched across the known world to enact its supreme rule. Upon Europe, upon the Mediterranean, upon North Africa, upon the Middle East, 
and stretching over into the Far East. The Roman Empire conquered all of those nations, which makes it extremely hard to rule. Nebuchadnezzar figured this out. Darius figured this out. Alexander the Great figured this out. Russia figured this out. Uh, when you try to rule many different, different kinds of peoples and nations, it's very hard to rule an empire. And so what Rome did, Rome, they, they're quite smart and they learned from history. What Rome did in the Roman Empire is they said in order to rule all these different kinds of peoples, with different kinds of gods and different kinds of cultures, all you have to do is put puppet kings in those countries that are loyal to Rome. Now, this is kind of modern politics in America. You put your people in the highest seat and you keep your people loyal to you and those people will always vote with you and do what you want to do. And so Rome began to put puppet kings everywhere. Now, this is what brings you to Matthew's story. So if you've never understood the New Testament, you've never understood why King Herod, a non-Jew, is ruling over Israel when you open the first page of your New Testament, now you know why. Because now Rome has come to power and they've conquered the world yet again and they've put their little puppet kings everywhere. Herod is not a Jew. Yet Herod sits on the throne of Israel because Rome has put him there to enact Roman policies, to collect Roman taxes, and to keep the Roman peace. He's just a puppet king of Rome. Now, there are people living, when you open the New Testament, I'm about to make Matthew and Luke's point, okay? When you open the New Testament, you say, well, all, all the lineages have been lost and there's no descendants to the throne. Wrong. There are people who know they are descendants of King David. The problem is Rome rules the world and you don't dare talk about it. In other words, if you came out uh, in the first century and you begin to tell a story, I am a descendant of the son of King David, I am the rightful heir to the throne, what do you think Herod's going to do to you? You're gone. What do you think Rome's going to do to you? You're gone. So I want you to feel in your heart right now the explosive nature in the first century of opening someone's life story with, this is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. <laughs> Do you understand what's happening? This is a bombshell going off. And man, to say something like that, if Herod spies, or if, if Caesar gets wind of this, or Pontius Pilate, you understand now why at the crucifixion scene, Pontius Pilate is questioning Jesus? Are you a king? Let's get to the bottom of this because that's the most explosive thing someone could say in the Roman rule. That you're a rival king against Augustus or Tiberius or Nero? Seriously? Well, that would blow up big. That would be all over the world press immediately. And action would be taken by Rome to make sure that you never got the throne. Yet, that's the very story that Matthew is telling. Now, when Matthew opens this story, there's a genealogy. And when you read genealogies, you're like, oh my gosh, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. Just shoot me in the face, right? Well, there's a reason that that's in the Bible. Whenever it doesn't, whenever you're like, what is this? There's a reason that it's there. And here is the reason. Because Matthew is going to open the Jesus story by saying, the rightful king is not sitting on the throne. The rightful king you crucified... But he rose again and he is the legitimate king. He's God's king over this world. He is the king of kings that for thousands of years humanity has been looking for. He is the answer to the problems 
They are the sickness. He is the cure. That's the story Matthew is going to tell. And when Matthew presents the genealogy of Jesus, he presents it in three milestones. He says, here is Abraham. And he starts with like the father of the Hebrew race. The father of the Jews. It's a pretty good place to start. He says, I'm going to make a parade. And I'm going to put Abraham at the front of the parade. And then... Here are some guys in between, sure, sure, sure. But then there's going to be a big figure right here in the middle of the the parade, and that's King David. You see, God promised Abraham, I will bless all the nations of the world through you. A king is coming through your descendants. And then back here in the middle of the parade, there's King David, a guy that God also made a covenant with and said, your son will sit on the throne of Israel and on the throne of the world and of his kingdom. There shall be no end. And then what follows David is a long line of people who went off into those Babylonian, Medo-Persian exiles of Daniel that he told you the story about. So there's this parade. And Matthew lists the genealogy in a way that makes you watch the parade. Okay, there's Abraham. Okay, there's Isaac, Jacob. Oh, okay. David. I know David. Yeah, okay. And then here's all the exiled people. And the parade is designed, the genealogy is designed to make you sit up and pay attention to who's Coming at the end. The king of kings. These are kings. These are promises made. Here comes the promise kept. And that's the way Matthew so cleverly designs the genealogy. The genealogy is so clever and so masterful that Matthew includes people in there that you, you just can't imagine he wrote into the story of the Son of God. I mean, in the story there is, here comes Judah. Judah is in the procession. Who is Judah? Well, he's the one who impregnated his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who was posing as a prostitute. That's part of how you got the royal line of parade you got right here. Because of that story in the Old Testament. And they knew the story. The problem is we don't know the story. In the procession is Boaz. Boaz being the son of a former Jericho prostitute that the Bible calls Rahab the harlot. Amazing things in this line. As you go down the line, here comes David. But who follows David? Solomon. The child who was born to David's adultery with Bathsheba. And it's all chronicled right there in the parade. And it's designed to get you to sit up and take notice. Like, oh wow, there's some curveballs in here. God's done some very... Listen, we look at our families and we say, look at this chaos. Look at this madness we call a family. We've got this freak show and this freak show and this freak show in our family. And wow, listen, I love this because I'm looking at Jesus' family. I'm like, they got that freak show and they got that freak show and they got that crazy uncle. They got this little thing. Yeah, it looks just like real humanity looks, doesn't it? it? It reads very genuinely. Matthew's point is that if God can work in these strange circumstances, watch what God's about to do now. That's Matthew's point. If God can bring forth a nation through this, watch what God's about to do now. Now I'm reading Matthew 1, 18. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, before any sexual intercourse happened, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now I've talked about this a few times and I'm, you know, In a a society like ours that's all about sexuality, all about sexuality and advertising and sexuality and entertainment and music and movies and everything, it just seems weird, though, that we're talking about somebody's sexuality in this way 
in the story of Jesus. But the Bible writers don't hold back. They put it all out there and they make sure that you know this Mary who's going to give birth to Jesus has never had sexual relations with a man. This child is going to be her firstborn. He is supernaturally conceived of the Holy Spirit. And in the text it says you're going to give birth to a child and you're going to call his name Emmanuel. Now, Jesus is really the Old Testament name Joshua. So when you read Yeshua, it is the way they would say it. Yeshua, Jesus, is Joshua. It's the same name. And Joshua, Jesus, is a very common name in Israel. Jehovah saves. But to call your child Emmanuel is a step too far for parents to take. Now, in our culture, you probably know somebody named Emmanuel. It's not Manny. Uh, you know, it's not that strange of a name for us now. But in these days, in, in Israel, if you called your... It would be like a parent taking a step too far. Because Emmanuel means God with us. You're basically saying your child is God. And so that would be just a... Yeah, you're, you're, that would not be cool. Hey, I'd like to introduce my, my son to you. Yeah, this is, this, this is God. God with us. God in a body. God, God in the flesh. And that would not be cool in Israel. But when the angel says, you're going to call him Emmanuel, okay, that's really making a statement because that's what they said about Mary's son. And Matthew wants to be very clear with you. So Matthew makes a direct application of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. When in Matthew 1.22 they quote this, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God. Matthew is driving this nail that this is the most unusual birth of all, for this child is not just human. He is human, but he is the son of God. He is the same God. This is what Matthew is trying to do. That Old Testament God that Abraham worshipped, that made a covenant with David, that brought him out of the exile, that Old Testament God that visited them on Sinai, that Old Testament God that made the world, that Old Testament God is right here in this man named Jesus Christ. He is the same God as that Old Testament God. They are one in the same, manifest in a different way. That's beautiful. Because the world had run out of hope. Going through four major Gentile empires, spanning all of more than 600 years, the world was just worn out with bad leaders and, and violence and war. And finally someone is born and, and, and they're saying about this child, he, peace on earth, goodwill to men, prince of peace, God is love, is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Such a contrast, what they're saying about this Jesus. All right, now let me move very quickly. Now you know the history of how it all laid out in the timeline. Now Matthew says, I want you to know, not only is he a king because of a genealogy, he's a king because of the right birth order. In other words, you can be in the right family. You watch the royals over in England. You, you know their names, but they won't all be king because they're not in the right birth order. You have to have not only the right genealogy, but you have to be in the right birth order or you'll never be crowned as the king. Here's what Matthew said. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Verse 24. When Joseph, he had a dream, the angel spoke. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate the marriage. Now, I'm just scratching my head, 
looking at this freshly again, and I'm saying, how does Matthew know who's sleeping with who and when they're sleeping together? And when, how do you know all of this stuff? This is very private stuff, would it be? I mean, if somebody's talking about all this stuff about your life, I mean, if I was writing your life story, this is quite personal stuff that you would need to be first-hand knowledge of somehow to be able to write down. Well, the only answer is the obvious answer. Matthew interviewed Mary at length because Mary's the only one. Joseph has been dead a long time. The only way you're going to know this level of detail is if Mary tells you what happened and Matthew clearly had some type of mother-son type relationship with Mary to be able to sit down with her and she just laid it all out there for him and he asked the right questions and he begins to put down and he gives a great level of detail about very private matters to tell you that Jesus is in the right birth order to be the legitimate king of Israel. Now that leads us to the birth of Christ, which we've talked about for the last three weeks. Christ was born in Bethlehem. The angels appeared to the shepherds. Shepherds, go down to Bethlehem. You'll find the child wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And that'll be the sign. You're at the right place. And they sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now we celebrated that two nights ago, okay? Now Matthew has fast forwarded the story. So if you're not sharp here, you're going to miss this. The wise men are not coming to the manger Fast forward the story two years. And that's what's about to happen next in the book of Matthew. Let me tell you quickly why the wise men. Who are the wise men? The wise men are... I have to go back into those kingdoms again. The wise men existed all the way back into the times even of Abraham. But surely when you look at the kingdoms of Babylon... Medo-Persia, Greece, way back here in these Babylonian kingdoms when Daniel and them were taken captive, there were already wise men, generations of wise men in those ancient kingdoms. Now, wise men is an English word. It's not the original word. The original word that's written in the Greek is magios, magios, magian. There is no English word for this. It means magi. (laughs) It means what it means. These are ancient political advisors who were also stargazers and they could tell the future and prognosticate by looking at the stars. Now, have you ever seen a Disney movie where the king has this advisor who's kind of like a magician? Okay, that's what we're talking about. That's where you get this. These ancient kings had a cabinet and some of the cabinet were religious slash Stargazer slash soothsayer slash political advisors. All into one. Uh, and this is not uncommon. Well, we were watching a movie the other day and who made an appearance in the movie? Not Nostradamus. What's his name? Help me out. The Russian guy who's creepy as all get out. Res- Rasputin? Okay. Creep show. Demon possessed, crazy, but he controlled... And he advised. Okay, now what we've got here is not as creepy, but it's these are political cabinet level. When the king wants to make a decision, call the magi. Hey guys, here's what I want to do. What do you think? The God's favorite, go invade. That's that's the way it works. Uh, I want to do this. What do you think? Here's the answer. And and they were political advisors. That's what a magian is. That's what the magi are. 
In 597 B.C., I'll go back to the head of gold kingdom again, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar invaded Israel and took captive many Israelis. Daniel was a prince of Israel, and so was Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. You know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the book of Daniel. And these guys were all enrolled. They were taken captive. The king made eunuchs out of them. Little scissors right there. Did you see that? Ouch. Made, made eunuchs out of them. Masculated them. So they're no threat to the harem in the palace. And he enrolled them in Magi University. And they learned the tongue of the Chaldeans and the government of the Chaldeans and the ways of the Magi. He made Magi out of them. That's what he did. He made political advisors. Because they tested everybody and Daniel and his friends were like the gifted and talented GT kind of people. Okay? And so he became, Daniel became the prime minister of the kingdom because of that. Now, here's what happened. Daniel, who is a God worshiper, in the middle of a pagan kingdom, gives us incredible insight how to live our lives right now. As America becomes post-Christian, these captivity books in your Old Testament become some serious reading for us on how to live out our lives and our careers in the middle of a pagan a context. And you say, well, we just need to get into a bubble and withdrawal. Yeah, that's what one form of Christianity says, and it's the wrong response. The right response is to get right in the middle of the whole thing and let your light shine and live out your life as a Christian. And you resist the empire while still working for the empire and still being vice president of the empire, if you would, or president, prime minister of the empire. And so Daniel is on the inside. He's the Magi, and he's leading the country, and he makes disciples for God. And he tells them, they see his light shine, he witnesses at work, he makes disciples so that he influences the Magi to be believers that God is going to send a king to the earth to fix everything. So, if you don't know this history, then how in the world do you think the Magi show up in Israel 600 years later? Where did they come from out of left field? Who are these people who are parachuting into Bethlehem all of a sudden? Well, they're coming out of the Medo-Persian Babylonian old kingdoms of the world which in the Roman day would have been the Parthian kingdom that was at odds with Rome still, still fighting with Rome. And from the east came Magi to Bethlehem. And when they rode into Bethlehem, they announced suddenly, I'm going to have to summarize my sermon in the booth, so follow me quickly. Now they are confronted with a rival king named Herod, who is no Jew at all. And they ride into town and they say, Where is he that is born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him. We've been looking for a king for 600 years in the east. Don't you know people were dumbfounded? You see, sometimes you think you're the only believers. There are millions and millions and hundreds of millions of people who believe just like you believe. You just don't rub shoulders with them all the time. If God were to bring us all together, it would be a glorious worship service, and we'll do that one day. But right now, we're all spread across the world on purpose so that we can let our light shine and tell the world about the King Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, these guys come from the east, and they show up. Not three guys. That's myth. The Bible doesn't tell you how many guys. More likely a whole troop of guys. They did not ride in on camels. They rode in on Persian steeds. Highly decorated. They wore conical hats and eastern robes. They are the Magi. They're a big deal. These are powerful people who are the cabinet level people through all the empires of world history that are chronicled by Daniel. 
these guys are a big deal, okay? Royal emissaries who make kings. And when they rode into town, they didn't ride into a hostile territory of a Roman province alone. They came with mounted Persian cavalry. Now you understand why the Bible says all Jerusalem was troubled when the Magi rode into Jerusalem. Why? It's like an invading army showed up with a bunch of royal figures. And when they came to Herod, they said, "We're Herod's like, uh, uh, what are you guys doing here? I'm about to be in between Rome and Parthia, and y'all are about to have a civil war in Jerusalem, aren't you? The wise men say, no, that's not why we're here. We're here because we, a king has been born. Herod says, how do you know a king's been born? They said, well, we are stargazers. We are magi. It's our business to be able to prognosticate the future by watching the signs. We have ancient writings from Israel. And an ancient man, who you call a prophet, Daniel, is our spiritual great-great-great-great-grandfather. And he told us to be watching for a king who God was going to send to fix the mess the world is in. And the stars and the sky say the king has been born. We've been journeying for quite a while. King Herod says, when did you first see the star? A couple of years ago. They go away. They're looking for the king. Herod says, I'll meet with you later. I need to think about this. Herod calls his wise men together, scribes and Pharisees, the Sanhedrin of Israel. And he says, do you, you guys know what's going on? These guys just showed up in our city looking for the new king. I'm the king. Listen, I'm going to lose my power, which means you're going to lose your power. We've got to figure this out right now. Rome's going to come in here, and then we're going to have a civil war right here. We better get this under control. Do you have any idea what they're talking about? If a king is to be born in Israel, what do the prophecies say? Well, this is what's amazing. The spiritual leaders of Israel knew the answer. They quoted Micah, and they said, yes, in Bethlehem, the prophet says, Bethlehem, though thou be the least among the princes of Judah, yet out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. And they tell Herod in Beth Bethlehem from Jerusalem is just a couple of miles. You came further from your home to church today than Bethlehem is from the palace. It's just right. It's a suburb of Jerusalem. Listen, the greatest event in world history, the event that all of Israel had been looking for, has happened the shepherds for two years have been telling people, glory to God in the highest, we saw the baby, it's happening, the Messiah has come. No one's listening. No one's listening. The greatest event in Israel's history happened a few miles down the road and the religious leaders wouldn't even go down to Bethlehem to see if it was true. Is this not amazing? Herod calls back in the wise men and says, yeah, Bethlehem's the answer. And so go and search diligently for the young child and when you have found him, bring me word again that I may go and worship him also. Wise men are on their way to Bethlehem. They'll be there in a few minutes. Herod immediately calls the executioners. He says, follow the wise men down. Just, give them a, just let them get there. Don't let them see you coming. But as soon as they bring me word where the baby, the young child is, you guys go down there and massacre him and the family and all of them and squash this king thing right now. What an evil man. What an evil man. And then ultimately... Ultimately, you know, Jesus is going to escape. So you know what Herod does ultimately? They kill every baby in Bethlehem two years old and younger. Why two years old and younger? 
because that's how long they've been looking for the king. That's uh, the wise men said, we've, we've, we've been coming for a while now. And Herod says, we're going to err for caution. Get, get them all. Just get every baby and kill them all. And the Bible says there was weeping heard in Bethlehem, Rachel crying for her children and would not be comforted because they were no more. He killed them all. Now, here's what happens in the story. Wise men go to Bethlehem then. He summons the executioners and said, just wait. As soon as we get the GPS coordinates in, we'll send you in for, for, for total destruction. Okay? The wise men leave the palace, and as they go, they're like, is something off with that guy? Does anybody feel like something's off here in Israel? Something's not right here. In, 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 something's rotten in Denmark here, is what they said. Something is really sketchy going on here in Israel with this puppet king and these Roman government. And these, these people are crazy. We're looking for the Son of God and they're worried about the, how they're going to spin it for the, for the evening news. We're looking for the Savior of the world and they're trying to figure out how they're going to win re-election in the midterms. We're talking about salvation for mankind and peace on earth and they're trying to figure out some petty nonsense that make These people are wicked and evil. We better watch ourselves, okay? So the wise men go down to Bethlehem now, a few miles away. They're looking for Jesus. And the Bible says when they started journeying, they saw the star again that they had seen in the first. And it came and stood over the house where the young child was. And they came to the home. Now, I just want you to put yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes for a minute. You're minding your own business, you know, doing the dishes, cleaning the house, cooking dinner, you know, whatever you do on a normal day. And you're minding your own business and all of a sudden, here come soldiers, here come colorful robes, here the perimeter is made around your house, you know, the cordon is sealed off, the roadblocks are put up, and here comes the VIPs into the scene, and there's a knock at your door and you open and it's like, law, here's all of Washington, D.C. on your front porch. I mean, here are, here are the magi. And here's the cavalry, and you're like, we didn't do it. And they tell, can you, would you not like to be a fly on the wall to hear what they said to Mary and Joseph? Open the door. What happens next? I can't even recreate the conversation. What, what do you think happened? We're the grandchildren of the prophet Daniel. We're the Magi from the ancient Babylonian Medo-Persian kingdoms of the East. You may have your doubts about who that child is right there. We have no doubts. We have seen his star in the East. You see, you can win the election, popular election in America, but you're not the president unless the electoral college makes you the president. Do we all understand that? Your vote matters, but it doesn't matter like their vote. <laughs> their vote's the vote that really matters. Is that fair? Now, they're supposed to follow your vote, but unless the Electoral College certifies it, Andrew, I don't know how it works here, but doesn't the Secretary of State have to certify the election or something like that? In the state of Texas, we're all going to go vote, but if the Secretary of State doesn't certify it, then it's not real. Listen, Matthew has made the case that Jesus is the Son of God. The Savior of the world, a descendant of David. Yes, it's unusual, but unusual is not unheard of in the story of the Bible, right? So now the king is born, and maybe two years later, everybody's having their doubts whether this little boy is really the Son of God, really the Savior, of really the Messiah, the king that God has sent. So God says, I'm just going to make sure you know. I'm going to send the Electoral College to Bethlehem. They're called the Magi. 
And no king can rule without their certification. This is their role. No king can govern the east without their advisement. They are the kingmakers. And you'll find them on the pages of your Bible all the way through. No one rules without the kingmakers. So what God does is he sends the kingmakers to the king's house in Bethlehem. And the Bible is very clear what happens next. They came into the house where the young child was. And they bowed down before him. And they presented their gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And they worshipped him. You say, what's happening? When the Magi bow down, they are certifying that this little boy is the king the world has been looking for. That's why Matthew put this in the Bible. And that's who the Magi are. 600 years after Daniel, there are still spiritual disciples of Daniel who are living out their faith looking for the Son of God. I want to challenge you in 2022 to make a disciple. You may think that's a small thing. It's not a small thing. If everybody in this room will make a disciple in 2022, do you realize your disciples are going to outlive you? (laughs) They're going to multiply and they're going to outlive you. And they're going to be here for the future to tell another generation about Jesus Christ. You may say it doesn't matter if I let my light shine at work or at school. Yes, it does. The world needs to see Jesus in us. Listen, if you're discouraged, I want you to know God has not left you without hope. Jesus has come. He is the hope of the world. And the reason He is asking you to do unto others, to love, to help the orphans and the widows, to seek justice, to pursue peace, The reason he wants you to live with kingdom values is because if you're in his kingdom, he wants you to start living it right now, not wait till the resurrection. I want to challenge you in the new year, live your faith out. Let's bow together. Last Sunday of the year, just a moment of prayer before we go and enjoy our lunch now. Let the Lord speak to your heart for just a moment. Let me say to you that you don't get in the kingdom of God if you reject the king. You have to bow the knee to the king to get in the kingdom. If you've never received Christ as your savior, this would be the golden opportunity right now. If you need help with that, you just come right here to this altar. One of our deacons will pray with you right now. This may be the year you need to make a commitment to the church and sign the covenant and say, I'm all in for Jesus. Listen, some are praying at the altar right now, just in this stillness. Maybe this would be the golden moment for you just to get on your knees for two or three minutes here and just say, God, as I look back on 21, I'm a little hit and miss. I'm a little all over the place here. God, if you'll help me in 22, I want to be all in. I want to be all in. This might be a great moment to rededicate your life for the year that's coming right now. Just in this stillness, whether it's at your seat or on bended knee here with others, just say to the Lord, Lord, see me, hear me. Lord, I love you. You are my king. 
Lord, I'm going to start living by kingdom values right now because you are my king. I hadn't really thought about that. I've just been kind of living my own life. But that's not, that's not right. If you're my king, I need to live according to the way you want me to live. I need to do what you want me. I need to take up your mission. Listen, maybe for some of us here, we've just become in hiding our light. We are believers, but we just kind of keep that, you know, muffled and, and tamped down a little bit. Pray for boldness this year. Courage. God, give me courage. God, give me boldness to let my light shine. Father, right now, Christians, our families, are bowed in prayer before you. God, we use this moment as a time of rededication of our lives to you. God, we pray that you would bless our new year. Lord, that you would prosper us, that you would give us health. God, that you would give us spiritual growth. God, I want to pray on the spiritual side, Lord, that you would give us spiritual fruit. Lord, may you bring your fruit to bear in our lives, but may you give us spiritual fruit in disciples. Lord, many of us have never made a disciple, and I pray that this would be our year, that we would engage others and lead the way to show them what it means to be a follower of Christ. Father, pour your blessings upon us. God, we thank you for your faithfulness in the past. And we know that you'll be faithful in the days to come. Lord, this is our prayer together as a church family. In Jesus' name.